This week's podcast is brought to you by Nextport. Video analysis software used from grassroots right up to professional and elite level around the world. If you need to provide feedback to your players, coaches, and even to your fans using some of the best software in the world, then just get, drop us a line, get in touch for more details. In today's podcast, I'm joined by co-host Keith Davis, who is a professional rugby coach in Japan and a fanatical surfer like myself. We chat about the first 10 days of the Rugby World Cup. We break break down some of the games that have happened and uh, look at some of the, the high points and some of the shocks and the logistics of being a team playing in the, in the Rugby World Cup. And for the second half of the podcast, we switch to the world of professional surfing. Um, we review the, the recent Freshwater Pro uh, contest that, was take, that took part of the Kelly Slater Wave Ranch. And we, we get into chatting about the future of wave, wave pools and, and their benefits and where, where we think they're going. So lots to chat about. So let's get on with it. Keith, welcome back to the Rugby and Surf Desk. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you very much. All good, good. Yeah, it's it is me. It's not Santa Claus. If you're if you're uh, wondering what's happened to me over the uh, over the span since the last podcast, it is me. Yeah, well, for the for the listeners on the podcast, you've got a big white beard and uh, grey hair, but the belly's gone. <laughs> so, you, you <laughs> are you losing weight? Are you? I am. Yeah, I set myself a target to uh, to lose to get down to a certain target before I was able to shave again. So the good news is that um, I'm not far off the target. And uh, so that's going to set me up for um, uh, uh, the next uh, next few months of surfing and whatever surfing better. Mm. I needed to lose some weight. So I made the decision to uh, yeah just uh, set myself a bit of a target. So yeah, all good. Good I'm, on you. I'm on the way down. Good. Me too. Um, what I thought we'd do today is uh, split the show into two halves. The first half, let's talk about the first 10 days of the Rugby World Cup. And then uh, maybe second yeah. half, move into some, uh, some world surfing news. Um, so let's kick it off with the World Cup. Have you been to any other games? Yes, luckily um, I managed to get some tickets to a few games. So I, I hadn't really planned to go to some, but we've uh, obviously been based up here in Kamaishi. We went to uh, the... The first sort of upset, I suppose, which was the Fiji Uruguay game. Yes, um, we'd actually we'd actually just been uh, three days before the game. We had a uh, a forward uh, session against the Uruguay team with my 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 team here, uh, Kamaishi. Right, um, and so we we had a, a really good. Um, a really good training session against them, scrums, lineups, and some malls and stuff. So, yeah, we went to that game and look what happened. Just a, a big upset um, with uh, Uruguay coming out on top of Fiji. Yeah, from well, from watching it down here, watching on the news, it seemed like a very emotional stadium, a very emotional time, especially for the, of course, the Uruguayan players, but for everyone probably. Yeah, well, again, it was uh, the first World Cup game at the new stadium, at the Unisamai Stadium, which um, was uh, emotional for a lot of the people involved in the rebuilding and all of the uh, all of the stuff around that. So, yeah, it was a fantastic day, really good, uh, fantastic weather. Um, 
beautiful. Um, just really good experience. And to see the Uruguayans come out and all the emotion that they put into the game. Um, felt a bit sorry for the Fijians because they just come off a really hard game against the Australians um, in which they'd had a really, really good half, put a lot, first half, put a lot into that game. But uh, then they had a really short turnaround that meant that uh, they had to come up against Uruguay after only, I think, four, four and a half days. So yeah. that forced a few changes in the team. Uh, the kicker, uh, unfortunately, the Fijian uh, kicker had a, a uh, an off day as well. You sort of missed everything pretty much. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, um, Uruguay s snuck in with that first uh, major upset. Great, great and, day. And for the listeners who don't know, the, 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 is it called the Hope Stadium in Kamaishi? Uh, anyway, well, it's actually known as the, um, it's the Unasamai Memorial Stadium. Um, but it's getting a bit, bit of a reputation of, uh, and sort of a nickname as a, a stadium of hope. Um, because of because of the situation that we had up here with the tsunami and everything in Kamaishi, so it's brought a lot of hope to the area, and um, uh, it's it's a symbol of hope for the for the, the people in the area. So yeah, yeah. Um, and on the day, it was uh, it was certainly it certainly lived up to its name uh, for the Uruguayans. Yeah, for sure. Although not so much for the Fijians. That, that stadium is is actually built on the very low the low part of the land. The, the famous, unfortunately, the famous video that everyone's seen where the water rushes over the, the, the port and comes up and, and through the valley, that, it's actually built on that low ground, isn't it? Where the tsunami ran through. So, yeah, well, Una Samai had, um, with the, it, it's actually built on the, the site of the, the original junior, uh, junior high school. Right. Um, fortunately, the evacuation processes and uh, procedures and everything that they had in, in um, place in the school um, meant that all the kids in the school actually got out. They all ran uh, up, up the hill and uh, where the new school is now, they've actually rebuilt a new school up there, it, which is where all the kids evacuated to. But the stadium is actually built on that, uh, on the old land where the school was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, That's it's, I, I didn't for know a number that. of reasons, got a, a lot of, uh, um, now, you know, sort of good and bad memories for, for the local people in the area oh yeah absolutely it must be i mean it was horrendous so yeah it must be a lot of mixed feelings up there but yeah a great day for for rugby and and for uh, uruguay unfortunately they lost their the next game to georgia yeah which was a uh... yeah they uh, again i think it's uh uh not that i would say that fiji underestimated the uruguayans to start off with but uh it's one of those things, you know, teams are getting closer and closer and we've seen that in a few of the games, especially first halves are, 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 are being uh, are, are generally pretty close. Um, Japan, of course, started off with a, a good steady win against uh, Russia in the opening game. Uh, I think that was 30 points to 10. Um, and France-Argentina, of course, was a very close one, 23-21 with France just coming out. Um, and edging that one. Um, then uh, South Africa, New Zealand, of course, was um, that was a 10-pointer, but again, the All Blacks came out on top. So, um, yeah, generally scores have been a lot closer than in previous World Cups, and that's I think that's good for the for the tournament tournament all, um, overall. Yeah. yeah.
So tell me about, um, I, I was reading, uh, we know Fiji had that, that was it, three or four day turnaround. Um, and I was reading a, a quote from Eddie Jones and uh, I think it was Eddie Jones, he was saying, yeah, well, we came out here knowing that we'd have a short turnaround of five and then six days. And I was thinking, well, six days is a week. It's, is that a short turnaround? It's, it's almost a week. Yeah, it is because you know, you're not, what, what's, what happens is that you, you're not only talking about um, physical fatigue um, in, in, in sense of like aerobic sense, but you, you're, you're talking about keeping players fit from little knocks and niggles and injuries and, and impacts um, that, that they have during the game and keeping those players because you've only got a limited number of players to select then it's keeping those players in good condition for the upcoming games as well, for future games. Um, so, you know, it's, it's if you've got a bit of a cork or if you've got a sore shoulder, do you use that player in the next game knowing that he might get, they, they, they might uh, aggravate it or, or, or make, it, make it worse? Or do you put somebody else in? So those are the decisions on the short turnaround. So, um, that's one consideration. The other is that, of course, all the teams are having to do quite a lot of traveling between games. Yes. So if you've only got a four-day turnaround mm. or a four or five-day turnaround, literally the day, after, the day after your game, most teams are having to travel to the next venue, to their next sort of camp area. Yes. So that means that that day you're not going to be able to train pretty much. Okay. Yes. The next day, you might have guys on the treatment table getting uh, getting rehab and recovering and, and, and whatever. So you're going to be able to do what a very light session. Then you're already three days out from your from your next game, which is a key, which is a key count back really to to have players fresh enough to play in that game. So if you fit maybe one or two very very light sessions in after that. Um, looking at team combinations and any new players that you've had to bring in, um, then the, the turnaround is is actually it, it becomes quite short because you can't actually do much between the, between those games. Right. Yeah. Travel, when, you put, when you put it like that, I uh, see. As you know, England played in uh, Sapporo, um, and then next game was down back down on the on the South Island. So you know everybody has to travel, the whole team has to move, and it's a, it's a big logistical. Um, uh, it's a big sort of a logistical project every time a team moves. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's it's not just the player the players' condition; it's the the injury factors. Also, using players, um, you, you know, you want everybody to play because at any one time, one of these players might be brought in to to to, to start a game. Um, so that management around the around the whole group is quite important in a World Cup. And that's where the strength in depth becomes really important, I think. That's what I was going to say. The squads that have the strength in depth are going to cope with it so much better, aren't they? I notice uh, New Zealand are playing uh, in a day or two, I think, and they've got 11 changes um, for the next game. Yeah. So almost a full yeah, yeah. team. You know? But they can do that, and that team would be almost as strong as, as, their, as their first team, probably. Yeah? But how many countries have got yeah. strength in depth that they're able to do that, do you think? New Zealand? Well, I think realistically, if you look at it um, over the results of the first week, uh, the indication is that probably there's only 
five or six teams that have that, mm. uh, have that strength in depth to be able to do that. I mean, you look at, for example, Scotland, their first up, um, first up loss against Ireland uh, was quite, quite a significant loss. They only scored three points. Uh, they played Samoa yesterday. Now Scotland have got a decent turnaround time until they play, um, I think they play Russia next. But then after the Russia game, uh, Scotland have actually got a very, very short turnaround before they play Japan again. Um, so Japan is going to be, Scotland-Japan, that's going to be a very, very fast game, I would imagine, uh, if, if we look at how the Japanese are playing. Mm. Um, so Scotland are, are going to have to prepare very well for the, um, well, Scotland play Russia. I'm just looking at it here now. They play Russia on the 9th of October. And then uh, Japan-Scotland is on the 13th. Right. So that's a four-day turnaround for Scotland. Yeah, so yeah. that is going to be a big pressure game for Scotland. Where, where's um, the, uh, so keeping their best players fit for that. Yeah, where's the Japan-Scotland game? Ajinomoto? Japan-Scotland game is at the Yokohama Stadium, right. uh, International Stadium. Yeah, yeah. In, I watched uh, Yokohama. Last night, I watched the Scottish game against Samoa. I, I thought Scotland were fantastic. They, they played a great game, yeah? A great yeah, well, again, Scotland... Um, uh, one of the interesting things we were talking yesterday, it doesn't seem like some of the Pacific Island teams are playing like Pacific Island teams. I don't know why, whether it's overcoaching, uh, whether they just haven't had them along, uh, back together, uh, together long enough. Um, but, yeah, the... the and I don't know whether it's this thing about the high tackle and the contact area that's been brought into this World Cup. It's causing a lot of, it's causing a lot of angst and, and sort of um, uh, confusion, I suppose, amongst coaches and players. So they're holding off some of the bigger hits and they're, uh, they don't seem to be spinning the ball and getting the ball away to, to, uh, to big runners as, uh, as, they, as they have in previous, um, previous World Cups or previous... Uh, you know, historically, that's the that's the way they play the game. Seems a bit conservative. Yeah, I don't know. because I, I think of previous World Cups and any time Wales come up against Samoa or Fiji, not so much Tonga, but you think, oh God, this this could be a dangerous game because we've lost to them a few times in World Cups over the years because they can be they, they come out yeah. with right with the right head on and the right game plan. They they are hard to beat. But this World Cup, yeah, they don't seem to have the the same edge to them. Uh, like last night, I thought yeah. from the beginning, I thought, well, I think Scotland are going to win this game. I just had it, had a, I got a feeling that they were, they were going to win it quite comfortably, and they did yeah. for a number of reasons. But yeah, Samoa look poor. So, again, we don't know at this point. You can't really say whether it's that the Tier One nations have made further leaps ahead, or whether. The Tier 1 nations are still around here. Um, some teams have made progress very quickly up to here, but whether the, um, the, the likes of Tonga and Samoa and Fiji are, are still struggling around that, that area to get consistently good, um, to get consistently good strength, uh, you know, strength in depth and, 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 and good uh, squad numbers. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a conundrum, but... The, the, the one thing, of course, is that the teams knew their schedule way, way in advance. Um, and I think, as Eddie Jones said the other day, they actually simulated having to come and, come and do these turnarounds 
um, they, they, they simulated it in the England training, putting them under the sort of pressure that they will have um, with these short turnarounds. But, you know, the, the Japan-Scotland game is now an even, uh, an even important, more important game, especially for Scotland, after Japan beat uh, Ireland. Mm. Uh, and with a four-day turnaround, that's going to be a big challenge on the day. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Now, my, in my head, I was thinking that, that Japan were not targeting Ireland. I thought, oh, they're going to limit their losses in that game. Um, what happened there? Did, did, I, did Ireland play very poor or did Japan play extremely well? Because they didn't even... I don't think Ireland did play poorly. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I don't think Ireland did play particularly poorly. They, um, they played, well, they played plan A. They didn't have a plan B. Uh, Japan were fast off the line in defence. They were um, ruthless in, in their counter-attack. Um, unbroken play. They were much better than Ireland. Um, and that's, of course, what Japan have been training to do. Um, so fitness levels, obviously, of the Japan team were, were quite uh, significantly noticeable. Um, I mean, it was a fantastic game. I, I, I pulled a hamstring just watching it. Yeah. <laughs> So I just, it was that it was that that exciting. Yeah, um, I was in the I was in one of the fan zones watching it, and it was it was you know just great atmosphere, fantastic. Yeah, I mean so, I, Japan was yeah, fantastic for, for the host country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and great. I, th I think, yeah, it was such a great result for world rugby and for the Japanese people and for the rugby World Cup because it just brings it keeps everything alive. The Japanese people. I mean, a lot of my friends have been going to the stadiums and they say, well, there's not that many foreigners there, but there's so many Japanese and they're all, you know, so they decide, they decide who they're going to support if Japan aren't playing and they've got makeup on and they've got hats on. They get really getting into it. So I think that, that momentum will continue while Japan keep winning. So Japan have a realistic chance of, of going through, do you think now, from this group? Well, yeah, I mean, they've won two games. They've won, won two games. They're sitting on uh, a win over Ireland. Um, and you, although you don't want to assume everything, the, uh, the game against Russia will be probably the... Uh, sorry, the, the game uh, coming up uh, against... Uh, who have they got next? Sorry. Um, uh, they've got... Samoa. Samoa uh, Samo next. Yeah. Um, and the way Samoa played uh, yesterday, I think, again, one of the things is that Japan are actually now playing quite phys physical rugby. Yes. Um, they're, they're good at the breakdown. They're good. Uh, they're aggressive in the tackle. Uh, they're double tackling, uh, double teaming most, most ball carriers. Um, so as we saw with the island game plan, you can't just bash through the, uh, through the Japan uh, defensive line anymore. Um, and if teams go into games trying to do that, then I think they'll come unstuck because uh, Japan's set piece, the, the scrums, the lineouts is, is good. Um, I mean, you had uh, um, Luke Thompson playing the other day, 38 years old, had a fantastic game running himself off his feet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you've got a guy like that who is still able to play at that pace um, and lead a team like that, then... And when Michael Leach came on, it was just a fantastic. Uh, his leadership was just amazing. Yeah, uh, the whole, he was into everything. 
But that's why I thought that they, were, they hadn't targeted that game because they left Leach on the bench to start with. Um, and I thought, well, if they'd been targeting that game, they would have had him on from the beginning. But uh, I don't know, maybe they, it just went, it just clicked, didn't it? <laughs> Everything started to happen. Um, so, I mean, I saw... Yeah. You know, if, if, you, if you can manage the first 20, 30 minutes of the game and, and run, a team, run a team around and make them work hard and make them put lots of tackles in, um, and which, which Ireland had to do, and if you've got big players get on the floor, making them get up, up and down, up and down, up and down, then they, they're going to tire. They're going to get tired. And if you've then got players like Leach and uh, even even Fukuoka, the, the you know the, the, the wing, yeah. If you can then speed the game up again and make it even faster, then of course that's a major advantage. And that, essentially, that's what what Japan were able to do. They didn't fade at all. Right. Uh, and that's a credit to the coaches, coaching staff, the players, all the work that they've done around the uh, all the work that they've done around. Uh, 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 the, the squad for the last uh, for the last eighteen months, two years. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I saw. I saw. So I, I think after this one, yeah, Japan will get a lot of confidence with it. Um, Michael Leach, is, the captain, has come out and told everybody to keep their feet on the ground and be level-headed leading into the Samoa game. Uh, but if they beat Samoa, then I think they're they're well on the way because the Scotland for them they've got more of a turnaround before the Scotland game. Uh, they don't, that's on the, Japan summer is on the 5th of October. Yeah. And then they don't play um, Scotland until the 13th. Right. Yeah. Well, last uh, night. Scotland have only got four that turn around leading into that game. So mm. uh, the loss, the Scotland, um, uh, the Scotland scenario is going to be much harder for Scotland. Sure. Yeah, and and Scotland last night were wounded animal, weren't they? They were so embarrassed by the Irish performance. They took a they took a slating from everyone. Um, they were yeah. it, it, it is a wounded animal coming back to show you what what we can do. Now they've got two more games, one more game before they play Japan. So you know what Scotland are like. They blow hot and cold. They can be brilliant like last night, or they can be terrible like against Ireland. So which Scotland team runs out against Japan is also going to be a factor. Um, now I saw in one of your in your social media posts about if teams are going to keep playing a um, one-off one-one-off power rugby against J- uh, Japan, uh, they're not going to succeed. What is what is the best way for a team to play against a team like Japan? Well, I think a lot of the teams um, they're not going to be a, be able to adjust. Um, and it's not just Japan; it's the like of it's the likes of the All Blacks and whatever that we've seen for years. The you know the uh, Canterbury, for example, in in New Zealand, um, the teams that can play um, quick counter counter attack, unstructured um, unstructured rugby are, are the ones that are are, are, are com- coming out in front. Yes. Um, if you just try to play continuous phases with the same patterns. So it's one off, hit the ruck, what, the halfback passes out, the forwards hit the ruck, the forwards hit the ruck. Then it's, it's so easy for defences to manage that, as we saw with the, with the Japan game against Ireland. Yeah. Unless you've got 
trickier options that are going to force the line into making, force the defensive line into making decisions. Um, even as we have seen quite a lot, the you know the crossfield kicks, uh, the little dinks over the top to turn the defence around, um, turnover ball, the use of turnover ball. These are things that the All Blacks, for example, are, are, are experts at. Mm. Um, so they're happy to be without the ball for quite a long time, like long periods in the game. Yeah. Uh, but when they do get the ball, then they switch up the gear um, and things, their unstructured attack becomes very well-structured and, and, and uh, how can I say, effective um, in a very, very short, short period of time. You know, I, I, I think one of the social media things that you're referring to was I put something up about, I remember years and years ago, the Pierre Villepreux, once I was at a coaching session talking to him, and he said, sometimes all you have to do is just throw the ball on the ground and shout play and see what the players do. And that was the French and the, you know, the, the French influence of what we used to see. You know, you give them the ball and you never know what was going to happen. Mm. But now there seems to be so much structure in the game. Um, and I think even, I think I saw a post the other day where David Campisi was saying the same, is that the teams that have this ability to, to counter-attack and use the ball in unstructured ways um, and get, get support to the ball after turnovers and, and, and uh, use the ball in those situations are, are going to be the teams that win. And that's certainly what happened with, with Japan. Uh, Japan, if you look, I mean, we, we get sort of technical here, but if you look at the Japan, technic, uh, the Japan defensive line, it's almost... You almost you could watch a game and almost never there's a guy on the floor for more than half a second, unless it's intentional and they you know slowing the ball down. So essentially, that player goes to the deck, he's up, he's on his feet, and he's back in the defensive chain again. So you've got numbers there, and if you then just try and run into that wall that they're creating, then it, you're not going to get anywhere, even with big men, yeah. which Ireland had. Yeah. Um, so. But it's well, what Japan did with the ball after, after that defence and through the turnovers and through good set play and through variations and, and options that, that made the difference. Mm. Well, I agree. And I'm going to jog your memory now because um, I actually distinctly remember uh, that what you're talking about um, with Vilpra and when he threw the ball on the floor and said play because... I was in the same lesson as you in King Coy College when he came yeah. to the college. Yes. All right. We were about yeah. 21, 22 or something. And he came and did a coaching session in one of our rugby lessons. And that's what he did. Yeah. He threw the ball on the floor and said, play. And after that, we all went, what was all that about? You know, and like, and, uh, and yeah. I remember using that, that ploy many times in my coaching sessions over the years just to get people to play instinctively. So, um, yeah, I remember yeah. it distinctly, that particular moment when it yeah. actually happened a long time ago. But uh, I think, and you know, I've always been a proponent of this. I, I think we've, we've overcoached rugby um, for many years. And I mean, all right, I don't want to hark on about the, the, the 70s and the Welsh team and all that, but it was exciting rugby. And then we went through a phase where we just overcoached, I believe, overcoached everything. And now 
quite quite refreshingly, we seem to be coming back to a point where people are are taking it upon themselves to mix the game up. You saw it beautifully last night with Scotland with the the cross kicks and the little the little chip kicks and the even running running out of their own twenty two and stuff. So, come you know once you've got the if you've got the control, um, and then you've got players who can mix it up. That those are the teams, as you just said, that seem to be doing well in this World Cup, yeah? Yeah. So, well, again, it's, it, the teams that do it really well are the ones that where it can, it, forwards can do it, props and hookers and, and second rows. They, they're all ball runners and they all, they're, they all have options. I mean, co- coaching, you can coach like scenarios, whether it be the breakdown, body positions into the breakdown, body position when you're in the ball carry, tackle technique and things like that. But the actual... The actual space that's on a rugby field in the, and how you use it is is is, is becoming a key thing because, um, you know, we had probably about 15 years ago where the likes of the Brumbies were running sequences and sequences and sequences and and some of the teams seem to just to be that little bit over sequenced as opposed to to playing as we say play what's on. Yeah, it looks what um, what's in front of you. You know. Yeah, and I think Japan have become uh, pretty pretty good as the All Blacks are obviously at, at, at playing what's on, and we've seen we've seen signs of it with England as well. Um, you know, I think uh, Australia, for example, the the other day um, didn't really play what was on at times. Um, got got stuck into um, into into running patterns, um, and. Yeah, so the teams that consistently do can do that with it, you know, good technical work around the breakdown, cleanouts, speed of delivery, lineouts, scrums, and whatever. Those are those are key things. But then, I mean, another thing that I always remember, and this is something that we we always used to talk about. I won't talk about the old days, but this idea this idea of organised chaos. Yeah. Um, it's it's not it's not a new it's not a new term. But um, the teams that are, are actually achieving organised chaos are the ones that are scoring points. Yeah. In, in my mind. Yeah. So um, it's been well documented that uh, um, you, you've been uh, quite critical of the, the Japan Rugby Football Union over the years. But Japan has seemed to have made a big, uh, so, uh, quite a lot of progress uh, recently. So. What what is the reason for that? Have they started doing something right, or what? What? How do you? How do you? What do you put the progress down to for the national team? Well, the, the, realistically, what the union does and what the national team does are two succinctly different things. Right. Okay. Um, what the what the national team has had for let's say the, the probably the last. 20 years is foreign coaches, uh, foreign uh, players being brought into the team. Um, they've basically been able to be run autonomously of the union. Okay. So yeah. all of the training structures, the training camps, while they have to have the support of the union, obviously, and the coaches are employed by the union, pretty much the whole program is run differently to what is happening in Japanese rugby in general. Okay. Yeah. So now one of the things that one of the things that's come out of this win against Ireland is that okay, yeah, the Japan national team they it's fantastic. 
it's great for Japanese rugby, potentially. Think back four years to what happened when Japan beat um, South Africa in Brighton. It was the same. There was a massive big boom in Japanese rugby for a year and then it died. Mm. Okay. Um, the media around rugby faded out. The participation numbers in rugby didn't improve. No. Okay. So what the national team does can create an atmosphere around the game, but the structural parts of the game do not, haven't changed. So still, for example, you can't play rugby in junior high school, except in a few schools. It's not an accepted sport. And even if there are schools playing rugby in junior high school, then those players, all they do is play rugby. They don't play basketball. They don't play cricket or baseball in the summer. They don't change between it. They're completely specialised. And then we have the same system in, in high school. Okay? Yeah. So we have over-specialisation in sport. You have kids still coming into the games too late. And you also have kids not being able to get experience in other sports. So they actually keep fresh and stay fresh and, and want to play rugby for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And we still have a big dropout of players at 18 years old because the only way you can realistically play rugby in Japan after you're 18 is to, is to go to university. Yeah. So the problem is that we have this, this really, really fantastic situation that's been created by the, by the national team, but we still don't have grassroots rugby set up properly to create I don't like the word pathway, but because it tends to suggest structure, but to have a, a conveyor belt of, of players coming through, um, I mean, you know, representative, representative of, the, of the massive population that you've got in Japan. We still yeah. have very, very low numbers of kids. And if anybody reads the newspapers in Japan, uh, Rich Freeman, who writes, uh, writes a column, uh, he's on Facebook and he works for Kyodo News. So one of the questions he asked the other day was, okay, that's fantastic. Okay. Now, straight the day after Japan beat Ireland, there were probably hundreds of thousands of kids in Japan who wanted to now play rugby because they'd seen Japan beat Ireland. But where can they play? Absolutely. Where can they play? They can't. Yeah. Yeah, I There's mean... No, there are very few clubs that they can go to. They're, they can't play in school. Because they're a member of the baseball team, yeah, yeah. So, and they don't have a rugby school, uh, rugby team in their school. Whereas in the UK, in Ireland, every single school allows you to play cricket, to swim, to play football, to play rugby, because it's that's that's your physical education. Um, those are your physical education options. But in Japan, we have this bukat system where you mm -hmm. only play for one club. That's, that's right. the big problem. Japan can achieve this as a national team. What is the legacy of that going to be 18 months from now? Are we going to have double the population of kids playing rugby? That is the, the key question. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I, I'm down in Mie Ken, uh, and my son's in junior high school. And uh, <clears throat> basically, uh, there are very few schools in Mie Ken that even offer rugby. 
So the, the, yeah. the median kids have almost no chance to play rugby, and there are very few outside outside clubs either. Um, so, yeah, I don't see how it how it's gonna how it's gonna grow. And for those and for the listeners not who are not aware, you did just mention it that the system we have here in Japan is that the kids in junior high school they go to high school and there's a club system. They're made to join a club. And they must stay in that club for the whole year. They cannot change until either they go into grade two or grade three. So there's no crossover. Yeah. Because crossover, I mean, if you're yeah. playing basketball, that's great handling skills for rugby. Um, so there's so much crossover between sports where some of the best rugby players I've played with came from soccer. So, but yeah. you don't get that opportunity, do you, in Japan, which is one of the big problems. Yeah. Um, and if, I'll and give you an I, example. I, yeah. I, I mean... I, can I, can I give you an example? Some years ago, you, as you know, I was, uh, I've coached in one of the most famous rugby schools in, in Japan, uh, Koji Takamasu, who um, has, was the head of the, uh, um, of the organizing committee for Japan and had a big part in, in, in bringing the World Cup to Japan. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was a teacher in that school as well. And I, I helped run the rugby program there. And one day it was pouring down with rain. We couldn't use the field because we played on a sand pitch anyway. So it was waterlogged and there was an outdoor basketball court. So I grabbed all the rugby players and I said, look, we'll go barefoot onto the outdoor basketball court. It was like, a, uh, not, not uh, concrete. It was like a, you know, like a tartan type basketball set, rubberized. Yes. So pouring down with rain, like maybe just before a typhoon or something. And we started playing basketball with a rugby ball in the, in the court there. And the yeah. next day, I was called into the headmaster's office by, uh, by, by the, the, the people in the school uh, for, for playing on the basketball court without the authority of the basketball coach, because that's not rugby equipment, that's basketball equipment. Yeah. There was nobody out there using it. Yeah. But that, those are the sort of problems that you come up in Japanese education. You know? yeah. In yeah. Mieken there, you've got, uh, you've got a professional team there. You've got one of the top teams in Japan, Honda. Honda, yes. As you know, I coached there. I yeah. coached there for three years. But you still don't have feeder teams that are coming through from, from local schools. I think Honda would probably run their own rugby school. Yeah, but they do have day a to day exposure to the game. Mm. Yeah. Day to day exposure to the game is just not available to Japanese kids. No. And, and that's the real pity. And if we if we if they did develop this grassroots structure um, properly do you think we would uh, be able to produce a national team that doesn't need they're probably what a 50 percent of the japanese current national team foreigners um i'm not sure about 50 correct me if i'm wrong but would we need to have all those foreigners in the team if we had a proper grassroots structure could we produce 15 or a squad of 23 japanese born and bred players who could play to the same level as the current team Potentially, you could. Yes, you need the structures, but, but it, it, we can't really just we can't really just um, focus in on Japan when it comes to foreign players. So essentially, um, it's people tend to overfocus on the Japanese team here. I think while it's it's always it's you know you want to see young uh, kids in Japan coming through the system a lot more coming through and being able to play at this level, and that would be fantastic. But in reality, all of the teams out there have got foreign players, um, and quite 
you know, in some cases, quite a big contingent. You've got Fijians playing for for, for uh, Australia and New Zealand and England. You've got Tongans playing for Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, Japan, uh, uh, England. So it, it's it's not just Japan, but Japan, because they're obviously not Japanese players, tend to get the focus. In fact, there are only three teams here in the whole tournament that don't have foreign players in their squads. Um, that's, uh, I think, Uruguay, uh, Namibia, and the other one would be Russia, I think. Right. So, mm. you know, these players are out there uh, traveling around the world where, where they go to work or, and play, essentially, which is work for them. Um, and the rule is there's a three-year residency. So if you're playing in a country for three years and you haven't represented another country, then you're entitled to play for, the, for that country. If, you, if selected yeah. and until those regulations change, then I don't think you're going to get much change around that. No. Um, but I, I heard that around, that rule is changing. Is that right? I read last you heard that it's going to change. I read last week that they're changing the rule maybe to five years. I'm not sure in the detail, but I'm sure. Yeah. That, well, know. I mean, there are suggestions that it should be five. There are su suggestions. It should be seven. Um, as in soccer, that it should be uh, your place of birth or birth of parents or whatever. Um, so, but until until World Rugby actually come out and 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 make an an announcement about it, then it stays the same. So, yeah. Um, also, uh, all the teams are playing within the rules, and you just have to accept that. Yeah, and if you're a coach, um, until it changes. Of course, if you're a coach, of course, that's what you're going to do. Now, now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you're appointed coach of a team like Japan or any team for that matter, and you're a foreign coach coming into that country, all you are really concerned about is your four-year legacy. What people are going to say about you when you leave after four years. So, um, so I guess my question is, how? What we know it's beneficial to have a foreign coach because everything he brings. But is it detrimental in, in the fact that he's only concerned about his four-year legacy and not really concerned about the grassroots game in Japan because he'll be gone then and off to somewhere else after four years? I, I don't think it's a case of not being, not being concerned about it. At the, at, when you're in a high-performance role like that, then you have a job to do and you're, 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 you're speci the specifics are your role, uh, of your role are laid out in a contract. Um, and oftentimes, as I know has happened in the past, um, if you start mingling uh, and, or delving into the problems of, of grassroots rugby and trying to affect that, and you then end up upsetting people in, in, in your own rugby union who will basically tell you that that's not your domain. Right. And I know, for example, that Eddie Jones used to get frustrated at this lack of development at, at junior level. And I would imagine someone like Jamie Joseph, who's spent quite a lot of time in Japan, actually. He played here, played for Japan, um, and, um, and uh, has quite a connection to the country. Uh, it would probably be a source of frustration for people like him as well. Um, yeah. So they're two distinctly different you know, areas. Um, you don't see, for example, Eddie Jones... Uh, delving into the school system in, in England. Um, you have schools unions and you have schools representatives and it's their job 
and it's the job of the of the rugby union to oversee that and how the game is is running their own country. Right. So, uh, I, I ask a, I ask a lot well, of you people. Can, you can voice your opinions, but really getting into it is is a is a long term project. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I'm, I can understand it. Just coaching the national team alone is a is a, takes up all your all your brain power and time probably. I mean, that, that, that is essentially where my, I mean, I've been involved with Japanese rugby, as you know, for over 40 years. And my, my criticisms of how the game is run here um, are, are because of my interest in, in development and bringing players through. And as an ex-teacher in younger, younger players and the development of, of players, my criticisms have generally been around what happens at the lower levels and how we create that pathway. Um, and that really hasn't changed, particularly here in Japan, for 20, 30 years, 40 years. That's right. Um, and it's the likelihood that it will change now after this World Cup is still very, very, it's still very, very, uh, it's a faint, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a faint mm. dream. Well, um, I was going to ask you about while that. There are talks about there are talks about changing the top league system and introducing a professional system. Again, that's a top down system as opposed to a bottom up system. Yeah. Um, but if I, I talk to a lot of people about rugby uh, and before this World Cup in particular, I asked a lot of my uh, um, students and, and stuff. I, I said, what do you know about rugby? And um, most of them come up with two phrases, right? One is, the first thing most people say is Goromaru, and they hold their fingers up in the kicking action that he did when he used to kick the ball, yeah? And that's the main yeah. thing everybody says. And the other thing is, some of them might say South Africa. And that is the limit to what they remember and know about rugby in Japan after the last World Cup, Goromaru, and the sticky fingers in the air. Yeah. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Are we, is that, is the same thing going to happen? I watched an interview uh, just before the World Cup with the new, um, the, the new uh, president of the J, JRFU, um, is it, what's his name, Morita or something? Um, the original president. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, Morisan quit, didn't he? And then this other guy is in now, is it, I'm not sure if it's Morita. Yes, yeah, it's and another Morita, but it's a different. Yeah, yeah. What, what are you, what are your, what are your strategies and plans for building on the, the impetus of this World Cup um, going forward from, you know, from the World Cup in Japan? And he, and he said on TV, yeah. um, we're, we're presently having meetings and thinking about that. <laughs> and the World Cup was kicking off the following day. That was the day before the World Cup. He yeah. said, we are presently having meetings and still thinking about that. My God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which means really that they're not doing anything. No. Yeah. And exa that's exactly what happened after the, after the last World Cup. And, you know, any progress that the, the national team has made, which is like I say, you, you, have, to, you have to take it separately from, what, from what's going to happen to Japanese grassroots rugby. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the big conundrum. Uh, it's the big question. Yeah. Okay. Before we get bogged down in Japanese rugby, what's what's the next big game you're looking forward to? Um, well, if I look at the schedule here, there's uh, there are no games today. We're talking on Tuesday. 
Um, and if I go across here, we've got, um, I suppose, the next one of interest um, for, um, or, well, England play, uh, um, uh, well, we've got coming up here now, uh, Scotland played Samoa, France, USA, New Zealand, Canada on Wednesday, um, Georgia, Fiji. That's an important one for Fiji, of course. Yeah. Um, to, um, then we have Ireland, Russia. Uh, that's a must win for Ireland, of course. Um, then an interesting one on Saturday, I think, will be the uh, England-Argentina game. That will be a bash. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've got some, not, I wouldn't call mismatches, but some, some games that you think, well, you probably sort of have a good guess at the result as you do in most World Cups. Uh, up here, we've got um, uh, a game coming up here in uh, Kamaishi again, which is the uh, Namibia versus Canada game. Uh, so again, it's another big day for the, for the city up here. Um, and yeah, we're, we're enjoying getting down into the fan zone that they've set up in Kamaishi City and a massive big, uh, I don't know how many inches it is. It's probably about 300, well, it's, it's about, 10, 12 metres wide, this big screen. Right, so, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, watching that and having a few beers, not that I'm allowed to with me being on my diet, but... Actually, that, that, our last podcast, we talked about getting beer in the stadium. Have they solved that problem in Japan? You've been to a few games. Can people get beers or are they running out after 10 minutes? <laughs> it's, it, they, had, uh, they had a few problems in the first week, let's say that. Yeah. Uh, I was. I went up to Sapporo to watch the. Oh well, I just don't think that they understand that. It's not. I mean, pretty much every beer stand that you go to, you have somebody standing behind there who, when you make an order, they have a can of Heineken, which is the, obviously the only beer that are allowed to sell in the stadiums. A can of Heineken. He pulls the rim can. He pours it. Okay, and then gives you that. Then. He has to do that four times, of course, if you want four beers. Um, and it's just a complete waste of time because they could just have beer servers there and just have like 15, 20 beers ready to hand out when somebody yeah. comes up. So the queues have been long. Um, actually, one of the biggest concerns over the weekend was um, the exits at the Sapporo Stadium, right. uh, at the Sapporo Dome. It was scary. I came out of that ground twice um, after the England uh, after the England um, uh, Tonga game and the Australia Fiji game, and they only had two exits out, uh, and it caused a lot of concern. Um, which was um, they had quite a few complaints to that. But back on the food and the beverage side of things, while they haven't been able to open up the beer side of things, uh, because so many fans were complaining about the not being able to get food and whatever inside the stadiums. Rugby World Cup did come out after the, World, uh, after the first weekend and say that people are now allowed to take their own food into the games. Right. So that was a major back step. Yes. That was a major, um, because you got vendors in these stadiums who've paid franchise fees and whatever to, to get the rights to, to, uh, to open, it, uh, open up in these stadiums. And because they're so slow and ineffective, then uh, uh, World Rugby had no option but to say to people, right, okay, you can take your own food in. 
Yeah, interesting. So I mean, in a, in a can- outside the stadiums, we'll be doing it. Will be boom time. Yes, so. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, let let me put you on the spot without too much discussion about it. Well, what are your options for the two teams that are going up, prediction wise? Pool A. Have you got the pools in front of you or not? I can tell you otherwise. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've got the pools. Okay. Pool A. My predictions. Yeah, your predictions. Who's going to go? Actually. Did I tell you this? I actually put the name of the winner into a sealed envelope and um, I'm going to open it on, on the final and I think I've got who's going to win it. Win the World Cup or win the pool? Okay. Win the World Cup. Okay, all right. I did this just before the World Cup started. Yeah. The only thing is I actually made 10 envelopes. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I'm not going to buy you a beer so, in New Zealand anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've got 10 envelopes. He threw the name of the winning team in, and I, I reckon I've got the right one yeah. in one of those 10 envelopes. Yeah, if you yeah. had two ends, so you pool, could try to... Okay, pool A. Um, pool A, Japan are on nine points. Um, yeah. I can see Japan winning the pool. Okay. Going through the second at the moment, it stands with Ireland, uh, Japan on nine points, Ireland on six. Um, so I, I think that's the way it will finish. Japan Island, personally. Okay, let's go on to Japan pool. Island. Yeah, B. Pool B. Um, Italy, well, Italy on top because they played more games, I think. Yeah, um, New Zealand only um, played one game. But yeah, you would expect New Zealand to get a bonus point in the next one, and with some and some positive, and also South Africa. Uh, New Zealand have already um, beaten South Africa, of course. Uh, so you would expect that to be New Zealand to South Africa to top that that pool. Okay, C, England pool. Uh, C, um, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a not a pool of death, but. Argentina France was a big win for um, um, for France over Argentina. Um, Argentina again have played two games. England are on ten points, maximum points. So assume well, England and Argentina. That's why I was just saying there. That's going to be a big game for both teams. Um, and so I would, even though, yeah, I mean you've got to go England, England Argentina there. England, Argentina. Uh, uh, sorry, England, France. England, France. England, okay. France. And Pool D. France, uh, France, having already beaten Argentina. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then Pool D. This is an interesting one. Wales obviously beating Australia. Um, so you can see that finishing in that order from now on. Wales, uh, Wales. You wouldn't expect them to come unstuck against uh, any of the other opposition. So they didn't get a bonus point against Australia, but then neither did Australia. So, <clears throat> okay, um, yeah. So that looks like the the order there, as far as I can see, and how the results have gone today. Obviously, the big upset, or not the big upset, but the big um, sort of probably surprise is that Japan are topping that group, and they could theoretically stay top of it. Yeah. Well, let's hope yeah. so. Yeah, I cool. really think the big, the short turnaround in the Scotland game is a big, big advantage for uh, for Scotland. 
I don't know if you remember a few years back, we saw what happened to Japan after they had a four-day turnaround in one of their games. Um, after, they'd, after they'd done really well um, against um, South Africa, of course, they then had a very, very short turnaround to their next game. So, mm. um, but yeah, I think Japan are playing a consistently good, fast game and they've got, um, they've got pretty good depth in that too yeah. to be able to play the same style. Good. And a good kicker. Yeah, so important to go into an international match with a world-class kicker, isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, do you have any, before but, we move on to surfing, do you have any uh, last rugby comments or not? Are you happy with that? No, no, it's just, it's been a, it's been a well-organized tournament. I think as, as far as, um, as, we, as I said previously, that... Uh, and yeah, it's good to see a couple of those surprise results come out, which opens it up and gives the the, the, the minnows a bit of a chance. But uh, yeah, let's talk surfing. Okay, all right. So we'll come back to the rugby uh, um, maybe in a week or so and, and have another roundup um, when a few more games have been played. Yep. Um, all right. Before we move on to the surfing, let's just take care of some business. Okay. All right. So, all right. We'll move on to the surfing. Um, all right, Keith, we're both into surfing. So, and rugby, of course, let's chat a little bit about what's been going on in the world of surfing, um, the world surf league. Uh, recently we've just finished the, uh, um, freshwater pro at the Kelly Slater surf ranch. Um, did you get to watch? Yeah. Any of that? Yeah. Yeah. I watched uh, quite a bit of it in between. Um, uh, in between the, the rugby, because um, that had already started. So, of course, um, but, um, yeah, no, it's good to, um, it's always good to see those perfect waves peeling, waves peeling in. Um, yeah. Um, and, obviously, you know, the surfers excelling on them as well and doing uh, some amazing things. Mm. So, no, 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 um, no shocks in the results, same as last year. Gabriel Medina taking it out and um, Toledo in the final with him, uh, followed by, I think is Owen Wright and Colapinto in the semis or third place. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and what, what is interesting to me about that is, um, how interesting is it to you to watch it? Well, I mean, we all love to watch that perfect wave and the perfect barrel. Yeah. How many times, would you have it running in the background all, all I mean, when, when, like when Chopu's on, when Pipeline is on, I'm glued to the screen, you know, as much as I, I yeah. possibly can be in between working. Are you the same with the, with the wave pool? Well, I, it's something I was thinking about the other week when I was watching this is uh, that in, in the wave pool, you can literally turn yourself off because you know that the machine is resetting and whatever. And that the same surfer is going from the left to the right because they get the two waves, yeah? Yes. They get one on the left and one on the right going back the other way, yeah? Yes. So you can literally go away and make yourself a cup of coffee, have a meal and whatever, and come back as long as you know the time, you know, the time stamp for the, for the machine to get going again. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like that, which is... Which is I, an advantage. I not say that it's against the culture of surfing, but it, it's, it's organised and it's, you know, and... You know who's on the wave, um, and I, I find also that um, 
you're seeing you're seeing surfers that although they're surfing really really well and on the limits of of what most people can do they pretty much have to complete the wave yes yeah so while they're doing some amazing things sometimes i think that because it's only a two wave a, a two wave scenario that they're actually surfing within themselves unless other surfers have have you know call come off fallen off and, and left a, uh, something open when they're in the, when they're in heats in the ocean we've got the scenario where somebody okay somebody comes out of the blocks they score two good waves and then that same guy can just let loose or or girl can just let loose for the rest of the heat and try anything to, to but they've got those two bankable waves and they're in the lead so they then can try other things with the priority and, and under priority surfing in you know just inside the takeoff zone let's say so that to me is is the is a big thing that i is a negative for me about the wave stuff uh, the wave pool stuff um mm. how it's so regimented and and uh, while it's a great wave and the, you know the, the maneuvers that they pull on there are fantastic um it's it's different isn't it? yeah I, I, absolutely right and i think a lot of a lot of people are surfing um um, within them, within themselves, because they don't want to fall, because they know they're not going to get a second chance. So, and that's why yeah. probably there's only a few surfers who can actually win that event because they only a few have the can do the aerials, can do the tube riding, and have the ability not to fall off when trying to attempt those. And be consistent. Yeah, yeah be consistency consistent. is a key thing. Yeah, and there's very few of those pro surfers, believe it or not who consists consistently put all those combinations together, including a barrel rider, a roundhouse cut back and, a, and an aerial into one wave and not, not fall off consistently. They, so yeah. that's why it's always the same guys sort of coming to the top in that event. Um, I have a question. I mean, uh, should, should the wave pool carry the same amount of points on a CT contest as other more consequential waves on the tour, such as Chopu Pipeline, should it carry the same amount of points or should it be weighted down, do you think? It's a good question, isn't it? Because mm. it's, um, yeah, while it's a, it's a very fast um, and, well, it's a perfect <laughs> wave. So you would, you would pretty much say that although people wouldn't be able to do the same kind of manoeuvres, people, most people could surf that wave. Um, whereas you, you wouldn't find me out in Chopu if it's anything over, uh, anything over, uh, two foot, then, uh, you know, those are, those are, as you say, those are waves of consequence. And, um, these guys are, are going out there and, but I mean, I, they're doing it in all of these waves anyway. They, they were in, they were in Chopu two weeks ago before the freshwater one. Yeah, before the, before the pool, they were in Chopu and there were, there were a lot of pros who didn't want it. On that, on the big day, yeah. there were guys there yeah. who were just sitting on the edge. And some some guys didn't take a wave; they just sat there, yeah. you know. Yeah. And they are the best surfers yeah. in the world. I mean, you look at uh, you look at Owen Wright on the on those waves that he won he won it with. Those were, they were just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that's something for the for WSL, I suppose, and for the surfers and whatever to uh, sort out over the um of the coming years but i i can't see that 
personally, I can't see that the wave pool scenario is going to continue in a, in a contest sense. Personally, I don't. I think the fad will. It won't die for the people who who could actually go there on a day to day basis. Um, and when it's flat at their beach, have an option to go and surf somewhere because you can book in, you can get in the water, you can have some fun, you can have a drink afterwards, um, or you could stay in a local hotel and surf the next morning as well. And you know that, you know, you know that there's going to be waves there and, and you're booked into a particular session. Yeah. But I think the appeal as a contest site, as a contest venue, I think I personally think that will die. Yeah, well, the rumor is it's being yeah. dropped for next year anyway. I mean, the, the oh, Kelly okay. Slater, yeah, yeah, the Kelly Slater Wave Pool um, is booked out every day, I think, until next April with corporate fifty thousand a day, yeah. fully booked out for yeah. corporate. I mean, yeah. I, that that is the business model for the Kelly Slater Wave Pool, I think, isn't it? It's it's not not open to the public. It's it's a corporate retreat where you take your clients and whatever they do, and it's very very yeah. successful. With re, with re, with regard to wave pools in general, what is the future of them? I mean, I, I, what you just said. I mean, you and me would love that. Say, let's get the boys together. Let's go to the wave pool and book it for a day. And we know how many you know we will we'll book all our wave sessions. We'll have a few beers and a meal after, and we know we're going to get barreled. Wow, well, that's just a dream surfing day in a way, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if you if yeah. you guarantee getting yeah. barreled, <laughs> you know, half a dozen yeah. times and then a few beers after, it'd be great. But what is the yeah. future? How do you see the future for wave pools um, commercially in the future? Well, again, I think you've got I think you've got two questions here. One one you've got the question of of an audience that is paying to watch. Um, live events um, and is taking the time to go and watch live events is what the audience wants is the unexpected is the points of difference is the bigger sets the smaller sets people come in half and having the big wipeouts yeah yeah people you know and and looking at the different beach setups whether it's a left whether it's a right whether it's a um whether it's J Bay, these these places, that's what the audience wants, yeah? yeah, which is completely different from the experience that every surfer wants. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, because every surfer out there wants to go and surf that wave pool once or twice in their life, or have the option to say, "Right, I got a bit of money, I'll go along and and and, and try it out." But you know, to to be able to to surf a wave like that, which is pretty much a perfect wave. Um, if we can sort of say that it's too perfect and, and it doesn't give you the unexpected uh, side of things that you have in, in, in the ocean. Yeah. yeah. So that it's different, isn't it? It's, it's like, yeah. uh, it's like playing rugby and watching rugby. You know? Yes. There are thousands and thousands of people going, as we just talked about now, thousands and thousands of people going to the stadiums who've never played rugby. Yeah. They've watched it and they love it. And they, you know, they like the entertainment. They like what goes on around uh, the area. If you're, if you're, if you're someone who likes to go and watch surfing contests, then you like being at Snapper Rocks. You like the scenery. You like the people there. You like the the cafes, and you like the, um, you know, you like the the the, the lifestyle that goes around it. Yeah, and, and I think this you're is not necessary. 
this is part of the the the, the dilemma, the conundrum for WSL is that. Um, the, the Dream Tour is not really a sustainable business model running contests around the world. But, um, but marketing um, to, the, to the, the VALs, as they call them, you know, um, vulnerable adult learners, bringing in new people to the sport, that's where the WSL are going to make all their money and make the sport sustainable so that they can run the Dream Tour. But... It's a conundrum is which avenue do they go down? Can they go down both? Um, and how, how do people view them because of it? It's, it's another topic for us to talk about on another podcast, really, because it's a massive area. Um, yeah. I mean, we've had recently, it's been the last couple of days, but the, there's talk about there being a new wave pool being, being built up on the Sunshine Coast. Yes. Uh, it's close to an airport. It's uh, close to population. It's close to... Um, there's a big announcement come out of it, but then in the same sentence, we have government people saying up there, well, you know, we, we don't know anything about this. There's no planning application. There's no, uh, it, it seems that they're trying to push the wave pool idea onto people and saying, well, yeah, this has got to happen. This has got to happen. But the logistics of it are that it's going to cost a lot of money to put one in a lot of money to maintain. Mm. And unless you've, you know, the uniqueness of the Kelly, Kelly Slater wave pool maybe means that you've got people who will be prepared to do a corporate trip from Europe to go and surf there or whatever. Yeah. But once yeah. you've got so many of them set up and it becomes not exceptional anymore, then, you know, will people just say, well, I, I you know, I want to go back to the, the natural way of doing it anyway. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, yeah. I was going to say, we, we, we are high performance coaches um, and, the value that I see in the Cali Slater pool is an incredible training facility. If you had a squad, you take your, you take your surfers there and you imagine say, okay, you, you're going to work on one specific maneuver and you could do it multiple times on the perfect wave that never changes. You're going to nail that maneuver in, in a fraction of the time that if you went in the ocean and tried it. Yeah. That's where to me, I see the value in it as a, as a coach, as a training facility. I think it's awesome. But you see, we, but, in fact, they're building a they're building a wave pool near my hometown in the UK, in Bristol. So I'm looking forward to when I go home getting up and having a go at that one. But that's wave wave garden technology. Now wave garden technology and the other technologies that are out there would produce multiple waves, and you can have multiple people yeah. surfing at the same time. That is a commercial model, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example. In, um, in Queensland, where, where I'm from, um, one, of the, one of the most famous beaches that we have on the New, uh, New South Wales-Queensland border is, is D-Bar. Yes. Um, and D-Bar is, is a training ground for lots of young surfers from the Australian High Performance Centre um, around that area there. Because you you're not in a scenario where you have to go out and wait for 10 minutes for a wave to regenerate and you get this one wave and then you, if you come off, you've still got to wait the 10 minutes. If you try, if you try and maneuver as a young kid, as a grommet on a, on a two foot wave at D bar. Yeah. And you, and you flunk it. Well, you paddle out and you get another wave that comes through. It could be 30 seconds later. Yeah. So it, for, for training purposes, D bar is probably better than the wave pool. Right. Hmm. Yeah, because you could go out there and get 40, 50 waves in an hour, which if you go to D-Bar, you see all the little 
bloody kids doing anyway. Um, you get that many waves in an hour, and every wave you take off, you could be practicing. You could be practicing them those maneuvers. Now they're doing that. The kids are actually what they're doing now is a lot of uh, dry land training as well, um, skateboarding. Uh, they're doing stuff in the uh, even like in the in the gymnastic pit at the high performance center. So they're putting what they're doing on land onto surfboards now. Yeah. Um, and as we've just said, on, in the wave pool, you basically get one chance. And if you flunk it, um, you're off the wave. And then it's a, it's a reset scenario. Yeah. So as, if you're in a wave pool that's got these multiple wave scenarios and there's one coming, there is talk about having that, that technology available. That's a different thing. But the Kelly Slater wave pool is, is basically this one high performance wave that maybe people dream about surfing once or twice. Yeah. Um, and, and then, well, yeah, do I really want to go there and, and you know, wait for Absolutely. Days? I think, you know, we have to, we have to remember, be fair that it was set up as a test facility. So people knock it, but it wasn't, it, it's a test facility. So, Maybe they got plans to make it into something else in the future. I don't know. But, it, I mean, it's, a, it's just, I think it's, it's, we can't escape the fact that pools are here. Um, it's just what yeah. direction they go in and how they're, they're best uh, utilized and maximized commercially. But yeah. they need to stay without a doubt. I think one of the interesting things that has come, come uh, for me, one of the interesting developments over the last couple of years that's come, um, as part of this is actually how um, there's now a movement towards creating artificial reefs. Yes. So on the Gold Coast, so while they're in the ocean, they're artificial reefs. And on the Gold Coast, on the Gold Coast, we're just having one being put out at, um, at um, Palm Beach. Okay. Um, there's, um, uh, there's, I think Weber, um, the, the Weber organization have got a couple of, uh, prototypes out there actually floating, floating reefs that actually move, mm. uh, according to the direction of the swell and things like that. So the, I've seen and, videos, and yeah. Because, yeah. And because it actually moves up and down with the tide, the, the, the wave is all always the same depth because the, where the break, where the, where the wave hits the, hits the, the artificial reef. Yeah. So you, even high tide and low tide, high tide and low tide, you won't have any differences. So mm. the consistency that is maybe possible off these kind of structures, and again, the interesting thing is you could have lights on those things. You could be going evening surfing, um, having them netted. Yeah, so you yeah. don't have the problems of uh, you know, uh, and um, yeah, so th those yeah. are really interesting and. and I agree. And, uh, I a development, obviously, from the wave pool scenario. Yeah, and that sounds a lot more exciting to me, the artificial reefs creating waves in places that, that are not producing swell at the moment. Yeah, especially with the, yeah. the crowd problem we have at the moment. The more waves we can produce in, you know, uh, to spread the crowd, it's got to be beneficial. Yeah. Well, so, okay. I'm, as you know, I mean, we spoke about this. I live in a place up uh, in the northeast of Japan, a place called Kamoishi. And the closest beach to me is a beach called Namiita. Yes. And Namiita um, also in the tsunami, um, the local surf shop there and everything, all the shops around it were all taken away, all gone. Right. Okay. 
And one of the uh, one of the results of the tsunami was that all of the sand from the beach got sucked out. So now it's just bare rock. Yeah. Bit by bit, over the last eight years, the sand has come back. But every time there's a swell, the sand disappears again. But the government have decided that they're going to rebuild the beach there to its previous condition, how it was before the tsunami. Yes. So they're now, it's just started this last week, they're now rebuilding the beach with, uh, with bedrock, um, different, different stone sizes, and, and we've sort of been talking to them and said, well, can you drop a few more boulders in here and a few more uh, things in this area and shape this a little bit like this? So as things progress over the next uh, year, they're putting, I can't remember, it's something like, a, it's millions of cubic meters of, of sand and rock back into the ocean uh, mm. where it was all dragged out by the, uh, by the tsunami. And, and are they open to that conversation of uh, helping the surfers? Are they open to that conversation of uh, accommodating the surfers? Because it's a commercial... Well, the local uh, surf... surf the, the guy who owns the shop there has been talking, obviously, to the local prefectural government and to the people who are doing it and sort of hinting to them that, you know, we can actually... The, the reason they're putting this back is so that they can get the tourism back to the area. And yeah. one of the major attractions for, for tourists to the area would be if there was a better wave there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's an ongoing project, but we'll see how that pans out over the next year while they're doing this. I can send you some pictures and whatever of the work going on and how it's, it's the progress over the next next year or so. That'd be yeah. quite, quite interesting to see. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Good, okay, moving on. We, we, we're Thursday, I think we're Tuesday today, October the 1st. October the 3rd, uh, Lacanau, Hosigo is kicking off. Um, yeah. Gabriel Medina's on his uh, back half charge, as usual. Yeah. Um, uh, we surfed a lot down down the west coast of France there. We know the waves very well. So uh, it's a bit wild and woolly when uh, when the waves get big there. That's a that's a talking about a wave pool. That's complete contrast. It can be an absolute nightmare just trying to paddle out, can't it? <laughs> Sometimes out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how do you how do you see uh, um, Lacanau and France going? Well, again, you've got potential there, I suppose, for lots of cross well, cross on and cross off winds. Um, in those in those uh, in those breaks and and generally tends to be a bit of chop around. So uh, if you got guys like uh, Medina and whatever doing the airs out there, if it gets a bit bigger and whatever, and uh, yeah, so it's going to be hard to beat uh, guys like that. Um, well, guys and girls who are um, are out and able to surf those sort of conditions. As we know, those beach breaks. Um, they, they can get pretty heavy and pretty uh, pretty big. Uh, I haven't really looked at the, the swell forecast yet, but uh, um, Eritrea last week was looking nice at times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's always a good contest down there. And then running running out towards uh, the season. Then I asked you about your rugby predictions. Do you have a prediction of, um, about? Uh, Running down the pipeline, who's going to be there at the final hurdle? Is Medina going to charge his way all the way to the, another world title? Yeah, I can't see him. I can't see he's, he's, the, the thing about Medina and uh, some of the Brazilians um, uh, is that they're, um, is that 
uh, there tend to be this this consistency now about what they're going out there and trying to do in the waves and and being able to handle different conditions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one thing we haven't spoken about is the uh, is the last uh, the um, the surfing games and uh, the the yeah. uh, the Japanese uh, surfers that came through there and the the, the the improved results there heading into the Olympics. So maybe that's something for our next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, before that, there. yeah. I mean, again, a great result for uh, Shun Murakami and um, Hiroto uh, Ohara did very well. Higarashi did well. So yeah, maybe next time we'll chat more about the the ISA Games and where they fit into the world of surfing and 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 how it the impact it had because. I don't want to get into it now, but I think a lot of the pro surfers who came over for that event who didn't want to be here in Japan actually really enjoyed themselves. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing, of course, is that um, very much like what's happened with Japan's result, that result by the Japanese surfers put them on a lot of TV screens around around Japan, and it created a bit of a movement for them to be able to achieve because people now know that surfing's in the Olympics and it's coming. It's coming to Japan, and seeing those surfers um, um, relatively relatively successful up against some of the top surfers in the world. Yeah. So it was um, yeah, it was good in that sense as well. It's created some uh, it's created some uh, anticipation around the event, um, mm. and of course, obviously, it would be great for the surfing industry here. Um, yeah. Sure. In that sense, the ty- the Japanese typhoon is coming. Look out, the Brazilian storm. <laughs> Well, having said that, there's another one just uh, just approaching West Japan, I think. So, yeah, there's uh, waves coming this week, Thursday, Friday. So, all right, let me ask you one closing question then. Uh, what's the last board you rode? Um, I'm still on my Stuart six um, uh, six ten. Yeah. Um, um, I which uh, I think I mentioned last time I ride that. For, it's uh, a they're boards that I've used for a long time. I actually brought them back from Australia with me this time to, to ride uh, for the winter and whatever. So, um, yeah, and the day, but the day before that, I was on a sponge board with no fins. So. Oh, there you are. Yeah, mix it up <laughs> a little bit. Good. All right, Keith, look, we've done the rugby and we've done the surfing now for this uh, uh, rugby and surf desk roundup. Let's get together again in a week or two and uh, catch up on everything that's been going on okay. in the world of rugby and surfing. Yeah. Well, hopefully my hamstring will be better by then. Yeah. and um, Don't watch yeah. too much rugby. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get so excited, eh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. All right. Okay, thanks for your time. I'll catch up with you soon. Okay. All right. Cheers, Cheers. mate. Everyone. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is also brought to you by IK, Index Crown Surfboards, a Brazilian company, with outlets all around the world, including here in Japan, written by some of the best surfers in the world. A wide range of boards from EPS, Epoxy and PU, fun boards, high performance short boards and long boards. See the link in the uh, website for this podcast and in the show notes and the link if you're in Japan, if you want to hit us up and get some more information.
For me 